0: Please open your Bibles to the 63rd Psalm, the 63rd Psalm. Our journey through the second book of the Psalms, sort of highlighting various Psalms in book two, is nearly at an end. Next week, we will finish book two with psalm 67 Um, then we'll have our resurrection sunday service and then we'll begin a six-week series on the doctrine of the scripture and the bible and inerrancy and dealing with modern challenges to that and then god willing we will enter the third book of the psalms so we will be spending some significant time this year in the psalms let's let's read the 63rd psalm together (coughs) A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness in Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in your sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. and In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. And your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be driven given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, the psalm title gives us some indication of where in David's life this was taken place. Its the psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now there are only two places in the Bible where David is said to be in the wilderness in Judah. The first is fleeing from Saul. The second is fleeing from his son Absalom. And we know the second is the case because down in the last verse, verse 11, David refers to himself as the king. And when he was fleeing from Saul, he was anointed king, but he was not, in fact, king. And so we can place this then in the account of, of Absalom's coup in 2 Samuel 15 through 19. So if you keep your thumb here in Psalm 63, let's turn back to 2 Samuel 15. We'll just look at a few highlights to set the context of this great, great psalm. As you'll remember, David had sinned with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, committed adultery with her, and, and the Lord sent a prophet, Nathan, to confront David. And David repented, and the Lord forgave him and spared his life. And yet there would be consequences. Nathan told David, because he had done this, because he had caused the enemies of the Lord to show utter contempt, the sword would never depart from his house. And that that judgment was terribly fulfilled when David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, and when... Tamar's brother, Absalom, her full-blooded brother, learns of this. He avenges her by killing Amnon and then is exiled by David. So already we've got some family turmoil Um, and Absalom is exiled and Joab counsels David to let Absalom return to make peace and Absalom is allowed to return but David won't see him. David won't um, have any interaction with him directly. And so Absalom then begins to turn the hearts of the people to himself. He sets up his own mock court outside of David's residence. And when people would come by to have their cases judged, he would pull them aside and he would say, Oh, if only there were a judge in the land who could execute justice rightly. Oh, if only someone would give me the right. I would give the people justice. And over about four years, he wins over the hearts of the people. And it's a conspiracy and it grows. And we see that in verse... 5 of chapter 15 whenever a man came near to pay homage to him he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel and then Absalom develops his plan at the end of verse 12 the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept Increasing. In fact, if you remember back to when we began going through the Psalms, Psalm 3 is also about David fleeing from Absalom. And we've, we've covered some of this ground. But I just want to look at a couple portions of this. David fleeing Jerusalem. Let's just look at verses 23 to 26 briefly. Um, and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back, and let me see both it and his dwelling place. Don't forget that line. It's going to show up in Psalm 63. I will again behold and look upon the Lord in his sanctuary. But if he says, I have no pleasure with you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And what David's saying is this. I know that this is in part judgment for my sin. The Lord has forgiven me, but forgiven sin can still have consequences. And he says, look, if the Lord is on my side, if the Lord defends my cause, I will return. Don't the ark should not go into exile with me. I love Zadok's loyalty here. The king's, the anointed king is leaving the city. Well, then let's go, Levites. And David says, no, you stay. You stay. If the Lord is with me, I will again return. I will again look upon the Lord in his sanctuary. And if not, well, then what can I do? And as he leaves, um, one of the descendants, one of the friends of Saul's household, Shemai, curses David. So as David is going into the wilderness, weeping, He is receiving curses. Look at chapter 16, verses 13 to 14. So David and his men went on the road while Shemai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. And so David leaves suddenly the news of the um, coup is announced um, out of nowhere. He's not prepared for this. He just gets up, packs what few belongings he can get, and leaves. Into the wilderness of Judah, weary, taunted by a man cursing him and hurling rocks and dust at him. And this is the context that David's in when he writes the 63rd Psalm. Now, ultimately, um, Absalom will make a blunder. He will not press his immediate advantage. He will delay, allowing David a chance to regroup his forces. There'll be a battle. 20,000 Israelites will die. Absalom will be suspended from the ground, caught by his hair in a tree, and Joab will kill him. And David will be restored. But right now, I just want you to picture this. David is minding his own business. He's right with God. Everything's going on as normal. And then suddenly there's news, a dire threat. You've got to flee. And he picks up his stuff and he runs. And he's confused and he's discouraged. But his faith is strong. He leaves the ark there. Because he knows that he can commune with God wherever he is. And he knows that that's the place for God's ark. And, and so he leaves the ark there and he goes. He even receives the taunting of Shemaiah, saying, look, perhaps the Lord has, has told him to curse me. I, I recognize to some degree I'm being disciplined for my own sin. I get that. And this is the context now for the 63rd Psalm. If you turn back to Psalm 63 now, we will begin looking at wilderness communion with God. This is an amazing psalm. David is simultaneously far from God and longing to be with God. You get a sense of maybe how difficult it was for David to tell Zadok, no, bring the ark back into Jerusalem. The opening stanza is all about his longing to be back in close fellowship with God. There's there's some similarities here between Psalm 63 and Psalm 42 and 43. They both echo this theme of thirsting and hungering for God. The biggest difference is that in 42 and 43, there's anguish and angst and confusion. Why and when and where is God? There's no such confusion for David here. This is just a stirring love letter. Someone who is just enthralled and passionate about God, knowing that for a time he'll be distant from the worship, the localized worship of God, the localized presence of God, pouring out his heart in love to God. And so for us, again, if you remember, the Psalms are written for our instruction. They're written to show us how to approach God in the various places of life. I'd suggest this is a Psalm for someone who is strong in their faith, but, but in, a, in a trial, difficulties, feeling further from God, and how to fight by faith. We're going to see this in three parts. The first point, thirsting and searching for God. Ser- thirsting and searching for God, verses 1 to 4. The language here, again, is quite expressive and vivid. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And, and what we see here is a present, all-consuming longing for communion with God. Which again is striking. David has a lot on his plate right now. He's the king. But is he king in flight. He's got his own son mounting a military coup against him. He's got the safety and the welfare of his family, of his men, the nation. He's in a wilderness. I mean, the the wilderness in Judea is one of the rougher, harshest climbs in the earth. It's not not a good place to be. We saw he arrived at the Jordan weary. And yet David is aware of what his all-consuming need is. His all-consuming need It's not a bigger army. It's not sharper swords. It's God. He's hungering and thirsting. And and the language is expressive. His soul, he says, is thirsting for him. And his flesh faints, which is a way of speaking of his whole being. Both my spiritual person, my physical person, all of me wants God. All of me wants God. That opening line, "O God, you are my God. that's That's intimacy there. This isn't the God of my family, the God of my country, the God of my friends. You you are my God. And so we got to set this in the context of a relationship with God. This this assumes justification. It it assumes someone who by faith is right with God. As David starts out with the ground being, God, you are my God. And because of that, I'm, I'm looking for you. I'm thirsting for you. I want you. I'm hungering for you. And then using the scenery around him, and the ESV has "as" in a dry and weary land. There's no "as" in the Hebrew. He's thirsting for God while being in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's not a comparison he's drawing. It's simply his context. The context where David is hungering and thirsting is, is in the wilderness. And y- you think of Jesus saying... When he's hungry, that, that, that his food is to do the Father's will. David has every right to be physically tired, physically thirsty, physically hungry. And that's not his concern. His concern is fellowship and communion with God. And, and, and so David is pouring out his heart. I'm looking for you, God. I'm searching for you. I, I, I want to be near you. And again, you think of how difficult it must have been for him to tell his addict to no, take, take the ark and go back into Jerusalem. How, what a delight it would be to be close to God's um, Shekinah glory and localized presence. But he doesn't. And there's good news. There's good news. David is saying this hopefully, not despairingly. The good news is, as our Lord said in Matthew 7:7, that ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. So the good news is, first, that our number one need is God and more fellowship with Him, more knowledge of Him, to seek Him. The good news is, if you seek Him, He will be found. That's that's good news. Um, Maybe the opening verse you find, like I sometimes do, intimidating. I wish I could say more regularly that I'm hungering and thirsting for God. And, And yet... We can have as much of God as we want. We can draw as close to him as we want to in fellowship. He will never turn us away. It's our own desire or lack of desire that limits us. And so if we seek, we will find. And this, this imagery of thirsting, thirsting. You, you don't need to turn there, but in Isaiah 55, 1-3, this is common Bible language for, for God and being with him. Isaiah 55, 1-3, the Lord invites Everyone, He invites us. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money. Come, buy meat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This, this notion of thirsting that God put in each and every one of us, um, a knowledge that he is the one we need. Augustine said that he, he made us so that our soul would find no rest till we find our rest in him. You think of Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus said to her, verses 13 to 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, these are all images and pictures of a satisfaction that comes in knowing God. And and here's the amazing thing. David can pour out his heart this way. And he does not know the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He doesn't know that God's going to send his only son to die on a cross for me. He, he knows Messiah is coming who will atone for sin. But he doesn't know that the Messiah who's coming will be the icon, the image of the invisible God in flesh. And so I was, C.S. Lewis commenting on this. was just amazed at how somebody with so much less revelation of God, so much less knowledge of God than we have after the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is this hungry is this passionate for God how much more so should we be it can get kind of convicting that David with what he knew about God was this passionate this excited this focused how much more this side of the incarnation where we see the image of God made that much more clearly in the God man Jesus should we be seeking to know him you think of the apostle Paul in Philippians 3 pressing on, leaving what is behind so that I may know him. And you, you think, Paul, you do know him. And what Paul means is I want to know him more. You can take all this stuff. It's junk. I just want to know him. I want to take hold of him who's taken hold of me. And that should be our hearts. And if it's not our hearts, the good news is later in this psalm, we're going to see how to cultivate this heart. This, this is a heart of someone passionately in love with God. You've got all these external reasons to be concerned and distracted and you're just focused on, I, I need more God. I need more of the Lord. I need to know Jesus better. Might be the way a new covenant person might say this. That is always our greatest need. Make no mistake, it is always our greatest need. And this thirst, if you look at the language in the psalm, verse two, so, or thus, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. This, this passionate thirst all-consuming longing for communion with God is fueled by a past experience of God's power and glory. Past experience of God's power and glory. You can imagine David as king may regularly have made trips to the, the tent of the Lord where the ark was kept. The temple has not yet been built. So it's just the Lord's sanctuary. And you remember there's this Shekinah glory, this, this light that was a uh, image of the localized presence of God. And God is everywhere, but he was especially um, where the ark was. And, and David is reaching back in his memory, and what's fueling his current desires, remembering past experiences of God's grace. And so if, if you find your current passion is weak, if you're having a hard time amening from your heart verse one, the place to look to fuel verse one is verse two. Maybe, maybe meditating, thinking about, going back to in your mind, times when the Lord has been close, times when God's presence did seem near, times when you were in awe of him, remembering how you felt, remembering how that was, hopefully you can cultivate a hunger and a thirst for more intimacy with God. I remember when my, my father died, um, as difficult as a time as that was, it was probably the closest time of communion and fellowship I've ever had with the Lord. Closest I've ever felt His His nearness, His presence, and His love and His compassion. Felt being protected under His wing, and when I remember that it, it makes me want more of that, more fellowship. See, David doesn't just make this st- statement statically. There's a reason. There's a logic here. I'm thirsting and seeking for you with my body and my soul because of the tastes that I've had of you, of, of your fellowship, have have wet my appetite for more. Result of this is present praise and delight in God's covenant love. Verse 3 and 4. So, again, notice the logic. I'm currently seeking for you because, look at verse 2, the verbs from the past tense I have looked on you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift my hands. Verse 4. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is an amazing statement, verse 3. God's steadfast love is better than life. So I want you to stop and take that in. And again, that word for steadfast love in the ESV is is that special word for God's covenant saving love. Uh, Gospel love might be a term. Remember, we said last week how God loves all of His creation. He loves the sparrows, He loves the stars, He loves all people. But he's only ever said to put his covenant love, his chesed, his loyal love on his redeemed people. If you're a child of God today, he loves you in a special way unlike any other part of creation. And that is what David is saying is better than life. And I want to stop and unpack that comment because better than life, it sounds like hyperbole, but, but what will people do to hold on to life? How highly do people prize life? pretty highly. Most people I can think of would pay any amount of money for necessary medical treatment, would undergo any sort of procedure necessary to give them more time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I just visited Bruce Pulver in the hospital. He's had all sorts of medical treatment in the endeavor of getting him better and more life in this world. Praise God for that. I thank the Lord for the medical treatment that he's getting. And you think of how dearly we hold on to our life. And here comes David making a comparison. Steadfast love of the Lord, life. Steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. And I just went to a conference two weeks ago. And they gave us an audio copy of all 18 hours read of Fox's Book of Martyrs which is not terribly encouraging. It's simultaneously horrific and encouraging. It's encouraging to see the faith of the early church. It's horrific to hear what they did to them. But as I was listening to it this week, probably two or three hours in now, you hear time and time again of godly men and women for whom the steadfast love of the Lord was better than life. You see, in church history, this isn't just hyperbole. There are thousands, possibly millions of believers who made this choice. No, faithfulness to God, His covenant love to me and my love to Him, that's better than life. They can take my life. I'm not going to deny Him. For He will never deny me. And so there's this wonderful statement, resulting in praise. Resulting in praise for God's love. That's why so many of our songs are focused on the gospel, on the cross. We're celebrating God's loyal love. We're celebrating his covenant love. We're celebrating his chesed towards us. We've sung songs this morning. Amazing grace. It's what David's saying here. As as we contemplate just how amazing and how wonderful the gospel is, praise comes out of our mouth. And so thus ends the first stanza of thirsting and searching for God. Now we move into verses 5 through 8. Satisfied and secure in God. Satisfied and secure in God. Now literally, verse 5 says, my soul will be feasted as with fat and rich food. And it's just such a wonderful contrast to this thirsting and yearning and hungering. And David says that hunger will be met and satisfied, not just with meager provisions, but with a feast. And so when I read that, I want to know, okay, how, David, how can you anticipate such true satisfaction and fullness of joy? How can you go from one who is hungry and thirsty in a barren land, I want more God, to anticipating, notice it's future, my soul will be satisfied. My soul will be feasted, glutted, if you will, complete, and it's the concept of complete and total satisfaction. I'm going to a a fine meal and just, I can't eat anymore. I'm full. My soul will be that way, satiated in its hunger for God. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And then look at the logic of verse 6. When? What's the condition that must be met that David is anticipating? And it's not returning to God's sanctuary. You would expect that to be the answer. Because I remember the fellowship I've had with you in your sanctuary, because i remember the awe and the glory and the wonder i'm thirsting for you i'm praising you and i know i will be satisfied sometime soon when and you'd expect it to be when i return it's not the case rather when i remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night and again and again we see this biblical emphasis on the primary importance of our use of memory and meditation if you've read the uh, Messenger newsletter, this month's article that I wrote is on the importance of memory. I mean, and notice this. David sees himself going from famished and thirsty to satiated and full with the mechanism that gets him from one to the other is prolonged meditation on who God is. I mean, isn't that, isn't that amazing? This is why this is called wilderness communion with God. David can satisfy his God hunger... Simply through spending some time thinking about, remembering, and meditating on God and what he has done for him. And that means we can too. We can too. Is your soul hungry for God? Is your is your appetite stirred? Get some time today. Get some time tomorrow. Carve out time in your week to read and think and meditate on who the Lord is and what he has done. It's a simple and profound truth. And of course, the the biblical concept of remembering and meditating is far more than just sort of half awake reading a verse, okay, done, check. It's this notion of chewing over like a cow chews the cud. Thinking and rethinking and steeping your mind in who God is and what he has done. And David says that is how he will satiate his hunger. The psalm starts, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty, I'm fainting and I am going to be satisfied And my lips are going to praise you when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. (coughs) Sometimes the most practical thing you can do is just get alone or get together with some other believers and remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done. Then verse 7, what's he going to remember? For you've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy, which helps us to see what he's remembering specifically about God. I'm going to remember and meditate for you've been my help. He's remembering God's past help, his deliverance, his protection. I mean, for David, this probably means most of 1 Samuel, where he's been fleeing from Saul. David knows the close encounters he's had with death and how the Lord has seen him through them all. I imagine he's sitting down thinking about the close calls and how the Lord preserved him, how the Lord protected him and who God is for him. And that produces welling up within him hope and joy and satisfaction. This is incredibly practical. I mean, it's almost so easy that we can skip over, it. but please hear me. The importance of regularly, daily, sometimes multi-daily, getting some time to get your mind fixed back on who God is, who who he is and what he has done for you. To cultivate joy and hope and faith. When we get to Psalm 77 in a month or two, we'll see it again. And, and again and again. This importance on memory. This importance on memory. And, and cultivating a pattern of remembering and meditating. That word for watches of the night is. is this is what David's doing as he's going to sleep. This is how he goes to sleep. Just thinking about God. And it, and it results then in verse 8. In a present trust in God to support and sustain. Verse 8. The result my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And again, this is another wonderful truth. Because of this, as he's remembering, what's the result? His soul is just clinging to him. You know, earlier this morning when my son first came in with my wife, he, and this, he's been doing this ever since I went away to California. Whenever I don't see him for a couple hours, he'll just run up and wrap his arms around my leg because he misses me, and I think maybe he's afraid I'm gonna take off for another week. And uh, I, I don't mind it, it's, it's, it's cute. And that's what I think of when I think of my soul clinging to God. You know, I think a lot of times there's this notion in Christianity that maturity in the faith is kind of like Christians growing up to be strong, powerful knights. And they go out and they fight battles for their Lord and they bring back the head of the dragon and they, you know, they bring back, you know, their their spoils from war and they honor their Lord with them. Here, look what I've done for you. And I think there can be a mentality that maturity in the Christian faith looks something like that. I don't think that's the case at all. I think maturity in the Christian faith looks like a three-year-old boy clinging to his dad's leg. And in that context, the Lord upholds him. As you grow in maturity, you're not going to be relying on your own strength. You're not going to be relying on your own power and ingenuity. If you're growing in the knowledge of God, then you're growing in the knowledge of your own weakness, helplessness, and impotence. And the good news is God, he's got his arm out. The shadow of his wing, he's willing to protect And he invites us to come. And so David says, my soul is just clinging to you, Lord. And in that context, your right hand upholds me. That's just good news. That's just good news. David isn't trusting, and he's going to eventually fight a battle with his army and everything. But right now he's recognizing his security, his safety, where he's at the sweet spot for him is clinging and cleaving to God. Holding him close. Not wanting anything to separate him from him. Which then brings us into our third and final stanza. Delivered and defended in God. Delivered and defended. We've seen thirsting and searching in the first stanza. Satisfied and secure in the second. And now delivered and defended. Verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouth of liars will be stopped. And what's striking here to me is only now. Only after he has focused his hunger and thirst on God. Only after he's just, what I need is you. And he's resolved his appetite and satiated himself through meditating on God. Only then does he turn to his immediate circumstances. You see, it's not that just, it doesn't matter what goes on in this world. You just need to focus on God. What, what it is, is you first have to focus on God. And only then will you be in a situation to rightly focus on what's going on in this world. You know, the third stanza comes third, not first. David turns his attention to his circumstances, to his enemies who are hunting his life. Only after becoming fully satisfied, fully safe in God. Resting, cleaving in God. Only now does he turn his attention to his circumstances. And so often for us, it's the first place we go. And, and so I'd just encourage you that even when frightening and terrifying things happen in your life, spend some time to first satisfy your soul in the Lord and then take a look at your problems. And so David is only now turning to these circumstances and only after being satisfied in God. And what he expresses is a total confidence that God will defend him and defeat his enemies. A total confidence. This is verses 9 and 11. Start with these buts. Contrast. In contrast to David. Whose soul is clinging to God. In contrast to David. Who's being upheld by the Lord. There are those who seek his life. Those who seek to destroy my life. Shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Now how can David say this? Well he can say this Because. The Lord has promised to uphold his kingdom. He's promised to um, protect him and defend him. And so he expressed his complete confidence. The same confidence he expressed to Zadok when he said, The Lord is on my side. He will bring me back here. And so David is not ultimately trusting in his army to defend him. He's not trusting in his military tactics to defend him. He's trusting in God to defend him. And when David's army is victorious over Absalom's army, the credit will go to God. The glory for such a defeat will go to God. David says that in advance. It is the Lord who will defend him, who will destroy his enemies. And then he closes with verse 11 with this great line confidence that God will establish and exalt his king the final contrast of this psalm the final turning point the king shall rejoice in God all who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped and so David now referring to himself as the king the Lord's king and this is in part his, his confidence in God's defense the Lord will not abandon his anointed one The Lord will not abandon his king. The Lord will defend his cause. You know and not to spiritualize this too much, but the same theme is confidence we can have that God will exalt his ultimate king, David's greater son, Jesus. And all who trust in him shall exalt. Here, there's this notion the Lord has sworn to David a kingdom and a kingship. And David is saying, even though we may look like we're on the smaller side, even though it may look like our enemies are winning. He's trying to encourage perhaps his army and his soldiers. All who swear by him shall exalt. This side, this team will triumph. And Again, that's really good news. Because if you're here today, I I hope and trust that you are one who is swearing in the Lord Jesus, who is trusting in him. And even though in the world around us it may look like um, our enemies are winning, they won't. If If you're trusting in Jesus, you're on the winning side. And so David encourages his listeners this is sort of bringing in the corporate aspect here of all who swear by him shall exalt this is broadening it out from beyond just David's own personal experience his own personal concern to the company around him part of the reason why this ends up in the psalter afterwards for the people of God to sing and learn from David himself in that unique position as the Lord's king none of we aren't kings um, we will rule with Christ but there is only one king David however was the king but we can certainly be part of those who swear by the king's name. Those who are trusting in, loyal to Jesus Christ. And the ultimate confidence that God will stop the mouth of liars. You know, David had to deal with Shemaiah cursing him the entire way here. And Absalom twisting the truth and turning people's hearts. and And, and lying and deceiving people about him. And even today in this world, people doing the same about our Lord and about the gospel and about scripture. And it can get ugly. I mean, David was scared enough to run for his life and leave the royal city and flee into the wilderness. And yet he's got an unshakable confidence that God will set things straight. God will right the wrongs. God will fight his cause. And so he's not wavering. He's not second-guessing himself if I really picked the right team here. No, I'm confident king will rejoice in God all who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped and there's going to come a day and we've, we've seen this and so often the bible is looking forward eschatologically it's going to come a day where God's king the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth and with the sword of his mouth he'll put an end to the rebellion and opposition in this world so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is the Lord for the glory of God the Father. Now that's not the David obviously is looking to the current revolts, the current insurrection. But this theme that yes, God will defend him there and ultimately God will silence the mouths of all liars is something we can take hope in and courage in. So to recap, David has a thirsting yearning passion for God, fueled by his past experiences with God that lead him to currently praise God. And he looks to the satisfaction of that hunger. He anticipates being feasted through the practice of remembering and meditating on who God is and what he has done for him. And that leads him to cleave even more tightly to the Lord. And from that position, he looks at his circumstances And with great confidence, he says, the Lord will fight for my cause. The Lord will defeat my enemies. The Lord will exalt his king and all who are in him. The mouths of liars will be stopped. And so practically, I just would encourage you to, to make a habit of finding time to soak your mind in who God is and what he has done for you. If you know someone who's who's in difficult times and, and unstable and 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 vacillating and having a difficult time. Encourage them by leading them in that same discussion. Who God is for us. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We change. And so frequently we need the course correction. We need to be recentered. We can learn from David's example in Psalm 63. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth that is within it, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would well up in us this same hunger this same thirst for you Lord not for things not for money not for uh, anything this world has to offer but for you and you alone and Lord I pray that you would satisfy that hunger with your loving kindness and your steadfast love to your people Lord we want to know you more we want to fellowship with you more and Lord, if we're honest, we want to want to know you more. So, Lord, would you enlarge our hearts? Would you reveal yourself to your people? Would you strengthen us with your grace? And help us to be unshakably confident that you will be victorious. That those who trust in you will exult in you. That no power in heaven or on earth. Nothing. Nothing will stop you and your purposes in glorifying yourself and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.